Hello, everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. There is a vicious power struggle raging on in the cyberspace. This new cyber battleground is full of unknowns, including major players, minor players, rules of war, and reasons for war. In these cyber battlefields, the war casualties have been quietly piling up. It seems every nation, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, has been hit and is at risk of being hit. No one is being spared, including common citizens. This cyber battleground brings each NGIOA, the good, the bad, and the unknown. With the world getting immersed in rapid advances in artificial intelligence, information and communication technology, and cyberspace technology, the activities in cyberspace have become inseparable from activities in geospace and space. The blurring boundaries of cyberspace with geospace and space has pushed each nation to a significant decision point today as they must continue to defend their current systems and networks in the geospace and space while simultaneously struggle to get out in front of the challengers and competitors in the cyberspace. As computer code connected computers and internet fundamentally transforms warfare, the new reality of cyber war is causing panic across nations. So the question is, how can any nation contain the threats posed by artificial intelligence, computer code, connected computers, information and communication technology, and internet? To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Richard Steinon to Risk Roundup. Richard is the author of Surviving Cyber War, uh, published by Government Institutes in 2010, and Up and to the Right, Strategy and Tactics of Analytic Influence, IT Harvest Press 2012, and There Will Be Cyber, cyber War, How the Move to NCW Has Set the Stage for Cyber War. Welcome, Richard. I'm delighted to have you on this roundup. Hi, Jayshree. Thank you so much for having me. Great, wonderful, Richard. So I think uh, for the sake of, for the benefit of our global viewers and listeners, let me start with the very fundamental questions. Are we already in the cyber war? Are nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, are they already in the cyber war openly? Well, it always comes down to definitions. I've seen, uh, you know, various academic sources argue that cyber war is impossible because there's no kinetic effects. And then uh, even when I publish a book saying cyber, there will be cyber war, I get a lot of criticism. People say, well, we're already at cyber war. Because cyber war in a, in a, a, a large sense could just mean two parties uh, engaging in attacks, information attacks, propaganda against each other. Um, and, you know, you see even a Twitter battle between uh, two people on Twitter being termed a cyber war. So you have to get, you know, to me, cyber war would be the use of computer uh, network attacks uh, in processing and promulgating the uh, intent to project force by a nation state or at least a militarized organization. So we have to include non-nation states in this because, of course, we have uh, caliphates uh, and uh, hacker organizations and terrorist organizations. They can use the same techniques that nation states can. So, uh, so the short answer is yes. There are obvious signs of nations battling each other in cyberspace. And the most obvious is, of course, Russia versus Ukraine and some of the Baltic states. Um, we saw Russia use techniques uh, against both Estonia and Georgia. 
that were part of military endeavors. So the case of Estonia was was more of a propaganda campaign, uh, but it did significant damage to an entire country by uh, extended DDoS attacks, denial of service attacks on all of their infrastructure. In the case of Georgia, it was a information and DDoS attack on their communication infrastructure during an invasion. Now, of course, that was 2008 that that occurred. During the uh, incursions and continuing battles in Ukraine, it's pretty obvious that Russia is supporting the hackers that now have taken down uh, a power grid inside Ukraine. So that's the you know going to be the, one of the classic uh, signs and uh, um, I guess weapons of future cyber wars is attacking infrastructure. Um, but my, my concern is the next phase. It's when you take advantage of weaknesses in traditional military systems. So radar systems, targeting systems, uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance systems, command and control systems, precision targeting. Uh, all of those were developed over 10 years ago and have very little cyber defense embedded in them. So future war will involve attacks against those systems and disabling them. Uh, when they're most needed and i'm afraid that battles will be results of battles will be impacted by whichever whichever side has the upper cyber hand yes yes no i agree with you on that but richard i mean the way you just described the definition of uh, cyber war or you know that nation states you know usually get into this uh, uh, conflict but the reality of cyber war is so much different richard as we know that you know anybody who has good knowledge about information communication technology who is really advanced in this knowledge can you know create this attack so now the battlefield cyber battlefield is entirely different it is no longer you know the nation states you know fighting wars it could be a single individual fighting a war with a whole nation it could be a group of people the reality and the dynamics are so much different than you know what the nations are used to completely agree it's uh it's in a sense well one it's asymmetric um in that the attacker has a tremendous advantage um, they can always find a target that they can somehow uh attack and, and damage in some way similar to the way that uh, uh saudi aramco had 30,000 computer PCs uh, completely wiped by attackers uh, and organizations in South Korea, same thing. Uh, and we don't know exactly who those attackers were, but you know, probably a very small uh, group of people. And it's also a continuously asymmetric uh, form of warfare in that once you use an attack methodology, you, your attacker, your, your attackee, your target uh, is now aware of the tool you use and start to build defenses if it's not too late, right? If tanks didn't also roll across the borders. Um, so an arms race is going to be uh, an interesting metaphor to follow because certainly nation states, the US, Israel, Iran, Russia, China are all developing attack methodologies and tools. Once they use them, then they're not as effective anymore because the the, especially the parties that weren't under attack get to see those tools, right? So some of the researchers, uh, you know, your Kaspersky's and Rapid Sevens and Fire Eyes of the world will discover that tool and technique and publish it. And people can build the defenses. So, you know, obviously my advice for all defenders is to do a better job of defending. 
Yes. Um, I don't really want to provide advice to attackers. Um, yes. But uh, that said, uh, nation states uh, are looking at cyber attack as a non-lethal way of projecting force and accomplishing their goals. So if you recall the Stuxnet attack on Iran, um, you know, no missiles were involved, no bombs were involved, and yet uh, the United States, with help from Israel, were able to slow down Iran's nuclear refinement capability. Uh, it's, that was really a wake-up call for, I think, every nation in the world to realize the, the power and their susceptibility to outside influence. Yes, yes, now I hear you on that. But see, your use of term non-lethal ways, that is, to me, very, you know, questionable because non-lethal to what? Non-lethal to human beings? That, yeah, you would not see, you know, people losing lives in this cyber warfare probably. But you will see a huge economic impact. It could destroy economies. I mean, uh, the, the lethal you know, word can be used in so many different ways. You could be lethal to, you know, industries. It, it, you could target, you know, industries. You could target economy. So there is so much damage that it would, you know, create. And, you know, people and industries and nations probably haven't started thinking about it. So it seems that, you know, cyber warfare has been openly discussed since 1990s. And cyber strike has already been part of uh, many nations' military strategy. Uh, not more, all nations, but many nations. Now, it seems that cyber, uh, it's only a matter of time that cyber warfare will escalate and destabilize economy. Now, there are some people who would argue that, you know, it has already started destabilizing the global economy. Do you see that, that, you know, cyber warfare is probably playing a role in destabilizing the global economy that we are seeing currently and we saw over the years? So not yet. I agree with you that uh, cyber attacks could destabilize economies. Um, I think the you know the banking economy, which has been under attack from cyber criminals, um, is kind of a there's a uh, relationship between the cyber criminals and the banks where they don't want to destabilize it. They want the banks to continue operating as is, so they can continue to leach or filter funds out of it. Um, it, that said, when a uh, when the chips are down and uh, companies no longer have a, a tight financial bond between them, for instance, if uh, sanctions against Russia got to the point where um, you know, Russia was no longer able to participate in global markets, then they would be able to attack those global markets in a reprisal to say, hey, if we don't get access to them, neither do you. So I can see future potential of that. Certainly the, uh, the latest uh, uh, plans that we've learned about uh, from uh, David Sanger, uh, writing in the New York Times for something called Nitro Zeus, uh, was actually a full-fledged US military plan to engage in uh, all-out cyber attack against Iran in the case that the nuclear talks fell through. They yet, luckily, they didn't. Um, but some of the, the expense, the millions of dollars and the thousands of uh, personnel that were involved in that um, are going to have repercussions, right? They probably did deploy things in Iran, um, which the researchers are going to discover. And all that money that they spent on these attacks are going to be uh, uh, not only wasted, but also revealed to people that didn't have the money to do that investment. So um, I 
seriously think that the future is going to be much worse than what we're seeing today. Today we're seeing, uh, you know, just sporadic and uh, maybe carefully orchestrated, but less impactful things like uh, information warfare or uh, one guy on Twitter said uh, he calls it cybrid war. So it's a hybrid cyber war. Yeah. Um, which I thought was a pretty good term. The, uh, you know, hiring uh, teams of uh, trolls to try and influence uh, public perception and, and from that influence policy that, uh, you know, we know that certainly Russia has been well reported on those cyber trolls that they employ in St. Petersburg. Um, China and the UK have, uh, you know, publicly acknowledged programs of uh, cyber influencers. So, you know, the people we meet on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn could very well be paid for hire and trying to, to engage in this low level cyber war. Right, right. No, no, I hear you on that. Now, uh, we are facing this chilling new reality of cyber war in which no nation or its industries or governments, academia, individuals or any organization, any entity within any of the component of a nation, they are not safe from this attack. So are any of them prepared? Do you see what are your observations? Because you work in this, you have done so much research in this area and uh, you have already, you know, seeing what is happening across nations you have the direct exposure to that what are your observations that are any nation prepared for this cyber warfare uh if there is a nation it would be estonia because they've experienced it they have a um you know they've they've thought of what they're going to do next time this happens to them they have a essentially a militia of volunteers that are ready to come to help um but estonia's very, very small, right? It's um, and the d building a coherent defensive plan is probably easier there than, than uh, just about any other nation. Um, but for the other nations, um, I see them all as completely unprepared. They haven't learned the lessons that Estonia did. They uh, have spent, unfortunately, much more on uh, cyber attack methodologies, you know, because that's the exciting thing for militaries, right? It's much more exciting to create a new department to develop some new attack methodologies than it is to actually look at your own IT infrastructure, not only for your military, but also for your country and fix it so it's not as uh, vulnerable to attack. Um, and they, they're just willy-nilly going down the path of uh, preparing to engage in cyber attack without any plan for defending against cyber attack. That is very, that is a cause of concern, obviously. Sure it is, now, yeah. Yes. Now, there are reports uh, that the data on the majority of the machines on the main computer network of Saudi Aramco has been, had been destroyed at one point, as you also talked, you know, uh, at the beginning of the session. Do you know what was the economic impact of that digital destruction of Saudi Aramco uh, in Saudi Arabia? Do you have some numbers or you know yeah I, I don't have numbers you know obviously there's the immediate uh, uh, cost of replacing hard drives um, Saudi Ramco deployed people to um, China in order to buy up 50,000 hard drives so we could do the replacement so that alone uh, must have cost millions of dollars uh, mm -hmm. the lost uh, business and business efficiency, the expense associated with 30,000 employees who are non-productive for three or four months um, would be another larger number that you calculate. When uh, 
the U.S. military was infected with a worm called Agent.BTZ. They called it Buckshot Yankee. Uh, it took them nine months to clean up three million machines, and the budget associated with that was a billion dollars. So that's gives you some idea of the scopes just from the IT costs of recovering from one of these. Now, when a power outage occurs, the you know, and you start having uh, you know the costs of replacing plant and equipment, um, the human costs if hospitals are without power or people who are confined to their homes because medical conditions uh, start to die, uh, those costs are, are obviously going to be astronomical. Yes, yes, you are right about that. I mean, then the data that has been lost, what information has been lost, we don't even know what was stolen. The impact of that, economic impact, it's probably not even known that you know how much damage has been done because of any particular cyber attack. So yeah, it is a really uh, very serious concern. But like, uh, let me ask you this: just like in any conventional war, the targeted nations um, for cyber attacks, or it's any of its internal targets of a nation, they maybe when they are attacked at that point they cannot do anything, but they will prepare once they are attacked and they will retaliate. So. Where do you see the conflict ending? Now, Saudi Remco was at you know targeted. They they are going to retaliate at some point when they find find out the details about who was behind the attack and you know what damage they created. You know, so they are not going to sit back. Maybe at that point they were not ready, but they will be ready. You know, eventually because this is a war. So where do you see this conflict ending? Well, some interesting uh, prospects there. You know, if you think about it, if, wouldn't the world be a wonderful place if we had more of uh, um, Gandhi's philosophy of uh, passive resistance, right? So if somebody attacks you, you don't do anything. Um, you know, that rarely happens in nation states. In, in any nation state, the uh, people in power, be they democratically elected or not, um, uh, feel forced to respond to overt physical attacks. So incursions across the border, uh, terrorist attacks against their personnel, wherever they may be in the world. We see diplomatic and sometimes physical uh, responses rather quickly. In cyber attacks, the leaders, the people who actually have to pull the trigger in order to respond, uh, also have take advantage of the plausible deniability. So, uh, so quite often, um, the attack isn't public, um, so it's behind the scenes. And for instance, you know, the, the Stuxnet attack against Iran should have created a, some sort of response against the United States. And I'm not sure that that response was the one attributed to Iranian hackers where they uh, uh, engaged in denial service attacks on U.S. banks, for instance, um, or the attack on Saudi Aramco, you know, how is that an attack on the United States? Um, so it may well be that the, you know, plans and investments are continuing because a proportional attack for Stuxnet would be an attack on the U.S. power grid, which we haven't seen yet. Um, and likewise, uh, you know, a proportional response to the attack on Saudi Aramco would be an attack on Iran's natural resource uh, abilities. Um, and, you know, the, the uh, governments are always wary of engaging in these escalations and may not want to. 
you know, the, the right response to any attack like this is first solidify your defenses. So if you step up your response, you're not subject to even worse uh, retaliatory attacks. And all these attacks in any attacks between nation states, be they trade wars or sanctions against uh, issuing visas, uh, uh, the big worry is they always could escalate to actual shooting wars. Yes, yes, no, you're right. Now, across nations, its government industries, organizations, and academia, at this point, they all work in silo. Even if any or all components of a nation are targeted or attacked, the intelligence about what or how much damage has been done is never clear or never communicated because they don't, a lot of times, they don't want to, you know, share that uh, because that would you know give an impression to others that you know they are vulnerable they have security vulnerabilities so they will face more attacks or they want to you know avoid legal liability and uh, there are a lot of you know different reasons why they don't share the information so we and moreover we still do not have effective technologies and tools that will allow any entity within any component of ngi to know that they are under attack at, at times it takes them you know months before they know that they were you know attacked so most nations or entities within an NGIO would not even know that they were under attack, what they lost or what was compromised or what damage has been done to their economy. So this is a very critical risk. We don't have effective tools, technologies to know that we are under attack and how, how to go forward on that. Well, we, uh, there are effective tools. It's just nobody's purchased them and, and uses them effectively uh, and certainly they're open source tools as well so but if you went to a typical ngo um, doctors without borders um, they have uh, it infrastructure for uh, communications website usual office things that we do they're probably you know completely owned as we say by you know some attackers somewhere by multiple attackers and you know it'd be very simple to approach a security firm, uh, even some nonprofit security organizations that would come in and investigate and tell you that. But a lot of people don't want to know the answer. You know, they, they uh, hide under a blanket of we have nothing worth stealing. Um, we, we can't be damaged. You know, if, if somebody uh, installs a uh, crypto locker on a laptop, We'll just go to our back top or we'll get a new laptop or something. You know, there's there's this complacency at all levels, at the individual level, all the way up to the largest organizations in the world. Um, I'm a big believer in technology. And of course, since I follow, you know, 1400 IT security vendors or products, I know that the technology is there to counter 99% of these attacks. So in, in the perfect world, uh, everybody listening to this should look at what they could do uh, in order to improve their defensive posture. Yes, you are right about that. And I was not aware that those effective technologies are there because when you hear that the governments are attacked and they did not know that they were attacked for, you know, months, you will you know, think that, you know, maybe there are not effective technologies out there because at least the responsible governments take you know and implement all those technologies across their you know departments and agencies so if there are technology available if there is technology available and if you know uh, corporations or governments or uh, academia or any any entity within a nation if they are not responsible in you know uh, 
uh, in implementing them, that that is another you know risk that we are seeing right there that they are not aware of what kind of damage these you know uh, attacks could do. So and it's not that you know if uh, one entity within a nation is attacked, uh, you know they say okay forget about it, we don't need to worry about it. But if they are damaged, there are so many other you know integration points of that you know corporation or a country uh, or a government that you know other people would have been damaged so uh, there is a legal liability there is a you know financial liability because of this and sure. we need to have proper you know understanding of that but let's uh, talk about this you know something that uh, i have been thinking about for a long time that there is a growing concern that the tools that are used for ethically attacking networks and gathering information in penetration tests because a lot of corporations and entities are requesting penetration testing to make sure that how strong the you know defenses are but there are you know some uh, concerns rising that you know this is a very unique way or re- very revolutionary way of doing espionage that the corp- companies who are you know in fact doing this penetration testing not all of them of course but some of them that they are you know disguised as you know corporations who do penetration testing and they are ethically legally invited to do that and that they are just collecting information so if is there any audit done on these ethical hackers and tools and technology they use how much do we know that they are not uh, misusing their access to spy and gather intelligence how would we know that yeah a uh, great question um so as always it comes down to reputation so the reputation of the principles of the organization um obviously you're not going to hire somebody off the street um though if you know them you know personally sometimes those people off the street are the most skilled uh, ethical hackers um the you know i used to be a penetration tester for pricewaterhousecoopers and obviously you know that was a an organization that uh, large companies would trust right they had to because there's so much at stake um so i would you know i would do i would look at that organization's ability to do background checks on the people they employ um have extremely good uh, you know contracts with them that uh, assign liability and protections for your information um and you know obviously check their credentials and talk to other customers that uh, have used them in the past now you know penetration testing if you're not doing penetration testing with trusted auditors uh you're being penetrated uh or tested essentially every day by this vast uh galaxy of attackers right they're doing it for you today uh, all you have to do is start looking at uh what's happening on your network and you'll see it happening and and so you can see that wow they're attacking a particularly vulnerable database um so boom you you've just for free gotten that act that uh, information uh, without hiring somebody to do a penetration test mm-hmm. so you know start looking at your network you're being penetration tested right now yes yes you are right about that now let's talk about a program called mosquito i'm sure you heard about that it is reported that not only did mosquito hide the fact that it was stealing information but its spy methods were very unique that it could be updated it could be reprogrammed remotely and it could uh, develop any technology and process that can be used for any work in cyberspace as enter malware or as a penetration testing tool so it, it was very very unique program now what my concern is that you know there is no governing body or a requirement to get license 
to use such tools for if you look at it that's if you even even if you want to hire an electrician you will look for a certified electrician they have to get that certification and that electricians they there's not much impact if yeah you hire someone who is not uh, certified you know yeah maybe sometimes you know a little fire would happen you know if they don't uh, do wiring properly we are talking about developing softwares that has such huge impact on nation's economy on so much more so why is software industry taken so lightly and why is it given a pass and why are there no requirements for something as serious as developing this kind of tools so you know cyber tools or developing you know any kind of malwares or uh, you name it so why is there no discussion about that that let's have some kind of you know governing body for that well there is um, there's discussion but obviously no action being taken uh, certainly within uh the halls of congress uh there's a lot of interest in certification requirements but ultimately they come down to you know that technology is moving too fast so you know electricity hasn't changed in 100 years so you can certify people in how to use it um and you know same with auto mechanics and airplane mechanics right very very slow moving technology that can be uh, regulated in that way software just changes um so rapidly you know every 6 months there's a new family of tools being used uh and you know anyone can develop it in their home shop and home network so i think that's the the reason now um uh, there are professional certifications for ethical hackers um several the certified ethical hacker uh, certification in particular uh which would at least be something you could ask people to demonstrate that they have the CISSP certification actually spends a lot of time on ethics um and you have to remain ethical in order to keep that certification so there are you know there are a few um uh, in the beginnings uh but this is a matter of uh reputation and trust and you know we've we've have institutions that have been established for hundreds of years just to create reputation and trust and even those fail us uh you know all of our financial institutions have fallen down on the job in that way and certainly our government institutions as well so uh it's going to be an ongoing battle right no you're right and i i think you made a good point that this is a very rapidly changing field that tools and technologies are you know changing so rapidly so it's very difficult to regulate it in a traditional manner so we'll have to come up with a model that is different than you know the traditional model of regulation so that is something where we need to put our thoughts on how to effectively manage this i won't say regulate but how to effectively govern this so that you know we have some responsible development of tools and technologies and there is you know as little as damage that we can you know expect from those developments now let me ask you about the malware known as flame Uh, which according to some reports appeared in europe and eventually spread to thousands of machines in middle east now it is said that uh, this particular malware uh, was very unique in the way that uh, you could re- pro- reprogram it remotely or and it could turn on you know like you know microphone even when i'm not using like laptop or when i'm not trying to you know do anything on that it would turn it on it would record the calls and all sorts of things without anybody's you know knowledge that you know they are being monitored or they whatever we type on the laptop you know that or computer that they would know what we are typing so this how i mean 
when the, when you see that thousands and thousands of computers were affected because of you know this malware do you know how the nations uh, that were affected how they responded or uh, how they are thinking of responding to such uh, attacks so or did they, they even know about it that they were oh, they certainly know about it and they're paying attention flame was brilliant and remarkable for the fact that it used uh, Microsoft Update as its delivery mechanism. Uh, so that's unique. And one of those levels of trust I was talking about, right? We trust our software providers, such as Microsoft and Adobe and Apple, to when they push an update to us, we trust that update. Um, now, they've built in digital signatures that you know are a pretty strong way of authenticating that the update is coming from Microsoft. But in Flame's case, the, the attackers, uh, probably uh, US intelligence, the NSA, figured out how to um, create their own digital signature uh, mimicking, spoofing Microsoft's. A very, very expensive proposition. One researcher said it probably cost a quarter million dollars of compute time alone in order to establish that. So Flame was highly targeted. The people who received it, um, you know, didn't spread like a worm. People who received it were targeted by a nation state. And the, you know, I think, unfortunately, the, the response is, oh, my gosh, we have to get that ability in order to be so sophisticated, too, because look at all the great intelligence you can gather. So uh, it's it, the response has been an escalation in, uh, in the cyber war. I see, I see. So it's an entirely different kind of response you would see. I mean, they also want this kind of tool, so they could yeah. have Oh, that's, that's cool. I want it too. Oh, my goodness. That's that's very interesting. But uh, you made an interesting point that, you know, that uh, when you get emails or from companies like Microsoft and when you see attachments of Word or, you know, PowerPoint, which are normally used to, you know, create some kind of, you know, interest in opening those attachments, what is the legal liability to you see for those corporations when their tool, when their products or when their tools are used for you know cyber warfare? Oh yeah, um, I I think they're pretty good at avoiding any liability. You know, they just create some clauses in their acceptable use policies that uh, obviate them from that liability or excuse them from it. Um, you know, so I I. I like to take the approach that we're all responsible for our own security. You know, if you fail in your security measures, that's your fault. Um, uh, not the, you know, certainly we should do what we can to take down the attackers. Um, but if you're running an unpatched uh, Windows system, heck, if you're using Windows to do critical work on, I think you're at fault. You know, you this this is the machine that the attackers know how to target. You should use something else. Um, you know, use a Google Chromebook, use something in the cloud, use an uh, Apple uh, computer. You'll be at least not as easy to attack if you're doing that. Um, you know, you just have to take extraordinary measures to protect your own data, and every organization has to. Right. I know. I, I, I think that's a good suggestion. And I hear you on that, that, you know, security is each individual's affair. And that's what we believe at Risk Group, too, that, you know, security is no longer a government affair. It's an NGIOAI affair. It means every corporation, every industry, every academia organization and individuals, they have to, you know, be responsible for their own security. So uh, you're right about that. Now, there are reports that a virus named Duku, which targeted very few machines, but they began collecting information about the computer systems controlling industrial machinery 
and to diagram the commercial relationships of various organizations uh, in those uh, targeted nations. Now, it seems when you look at each of these, you know, uh, malware or each of these, you know, cyber warfare tool that was used, that behind each of that attack was underlying, you know, intention of economic impact, economic warfare. Every every uh, malware or attack that you would see and that you would analyze every you know cyber warfare tool, every nation that has been targeted either you they're trying to you know steal their you know intelligence about how they are doing things processes or designs, and all sorts of things. So it is in a sense economic warfare disguised as cyber warfare. Cyber tools are just the weapons. But basically, this is economic warfare going on in this, you know, digital global age. So how would you respond to that? You know, that, you know, this is a economic warfare going on in a digital global age using the cyber tools and artificial intelligence and information communication technology. And uh, nations, who would be these nations who are trying? Is it one nation trying to gather all that intelligence from every nation, or is it you know many nations trying to do the same thing? Well, Duku in particular has been attributed to the United States by by Kaspersky. But uh, most nation states and China in particular are responsible for industrial espionage. Um, U.S. through uh, affiliates in Canada are accused of doing the same thing. So yes, industrial espionage is uh, taking advantage of this windfall of easy intelligence gathering, um, but there's also diplomatic espionage. Um, and right now, you know, the things I look out for are reconnaissance for future attacks, and those are most worrisome. So I look at the power grid, and the software that's most seen there are the family in the black energy group of uh, uh, malware. And that particularly is targeted. We've seen it in the Ukraine. It's widely spread throughout the U.S. Uh, power generation and transmission uh, organizations. Um, and that's gathering intelligence, right? Though it's, it also can uh, do damage, uh, as apparently it did with a separate download in Ukraine. Uh, but it's a, a foot in the door, right? So it's it's a uh, beachhead, if you if you want, uh, inside critical infrastructure that could be further manipulated in order to do damage once they understand exactly how that infrastructure works. Yes, yes, you're right about that. Now, it seems that as of today, nations do not openly declare cyber war. It's more like covert operations, which is done in secret. You know, nations do not even want to acknowledge that they are behind this, you know, attack. Are there any discussions to bringing some structure to the cyber warfare with unanimous rules of engagement? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, creating norms, and you know while we can uh, get nations to agree not to engage in attacks, and uh, you know uh, China and Russia have a open agreement not to do that, um, and the U.S. and China supposedly have. Uh, you know, uh, at least a handshake deal not to do that. And obviously um, it's still continuing from both sides probably. Um, so I think the, you know, the only declared cyber wars have been uh, created by anonymous, right? With their various operations. Um, and of course they're fairly ineffectual compared to real nations. 
Um, but for that matter, there aren't very many declared wars either, and yet there are many, many uh, right. uh, wars and battlegrounds around the world. So, right. I think, you know, if you think about it, that's probably been the biggest impact of the United Nations is no, nobody ever says they're actually at war anymore. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so I don't see declared cyber wars being much of the future. Ah, okay, good, good analysis. Let's uh, see, you know, what we, the nations will do in the coming years. But now let's talk about the malware designed for physical sabotage. It is reported that as early as 2007, uh, this is, of course, you know, the Stuxnet that we are talking about. Now, design, it was designed for physical sabotage, sabotage of machinery. And uh, there are also reports that Stuxnet was the first autonomous weapon with an algorithm. That means machine pulling the trigger, artificial intelligence-based cyber warfare. Now, this is entirely different, you know, story that we are talking about. This is a very serious concern. What can you tell our global viewers and listeners about the artificial intelligence-based cyber war? So the um, the autonomous part of it is most interesting to me because the uh, advanced defense techniques that I was referring to earlier involve, you know, monitoring your network, seeing the early indications that uh, an attack is starting and then trying to disrupt it before it's successful. And today that's the attackers are, are, you know, working in real time, but they're sitting at their computers and they're working regular shifts nine to five. Uh, so you've got some minutes to hours to respond. It's the future when those attacks are automated and autonomous that uh, we have to get to the point where we can defend against attacks autonomously, um, which does take some level of artificial intelligence, right? So you, you need machine decision making, if that's artificial intelligence, in order to uh, make the decision when to shut off a network connection or turn off a computer or clean it, etc. So um, the certainly there's a future in automated uh, tools that attempt to respond to defensive measures. We're starting to see some of that intelligence built into malware that can check to see if it's in a uh, hosted virtual environment that would probably be a sandbox meant to detect it when it's detonated. Um, so they just sit and wait, right? So it's very uh, uh, simplistic, algorithmic artificial intelligence. Um, the future will be to see if uh, malware is developed that you know has a purpose, but not all the uh, techniques built into it, and it develops its own techniques as it goes. Right? If the purpose is to steal a particular type of information, it could just sit around and wait until it sees that information and then encrypt it and exfiltrate it. So, great question. You know, it's definitely in the future. Right. Right. No, but I mean, there is also something that is a cause of concern that the the way this whole Stuxnet operation uh, was displayed, it was very, very, very effective and very, very capable in operation. But what is concerning me is that, that there are reports that that you know particular Stuxnet you know uh, malware or whatever you want to, however you want to define it, that escaped. And uh, the question is, how did it escape? If Stuxnet was based on AI algorithms. This is a cause of serious concern. It's a source code of something as dangerous as this is on loose. Do you have any information about, you know, how this escaped and, you know, how, where is this source code and how many people uh, has access to this source code of Stuxnet? 
Yeah, so no information as to how it escaped, uh, other than that's always been one of the worries with any cyber weapon is that eventually the world will learn of it, right? So um, certainly the person who's attacked has the data somewhere in their organization. Um, in this case, it did escape, so the researchers uh, in Belarus could, could uh, find it and analyze it and tell the world about it, and other organizations could then look for samples of it. Um, I think the the you know that that's just one of the drawbacks of sophisticated cyber weapons once you use them then your adversary has access to them as well and as far as uh, how many people have access to it anybody who wants a copy of stuxnet can get a copy yes yes you're right about it now uh, there are reports that some malwares have a self-destruction module just like any well-planned intelligence operations that generally include false safe plans, if it gets discovered, then, you know, it destroys themselves. So this kind of sophistication and capability comes only from very well-developed, very well-advanced programs that has a huge, you know, support and funding. So which, according, I mean, based on your knowledge, which nations have developed such highly effective, sophisticated cyber weapons? And what are their motives? I'm sure it's not one nation. It would be more than one nation. Sure. Uh, if I had to list the nations that have the uh, capabilities, and I suspect uh, the uh, have already done this work, I would include obviously United States, Israel, Russia, China, but also India and Pakistan. Um, and there's you know opportunity for any nation to get into this game. They get to hire you know 20 PhDs in computer science and be up and running in in less than six months. So. Um, you know, there's no very, very low barrier to entry to get into this. Right. What, do, what is your uh, understanding about uh, each individual nation's cyber capabilities? You just said India, Pakistan, and, you know, China. And where are they in terms of their cyber capabilities? Because when I, I mean, when I look at some nations, I don't see that there is much any more, de any development happening there. Yeah, which uh, we didn't see much development inside the United States until uh, Edward Snowden leaked those documents. Um, so it's, it's a guessing game, uh, but there's been enough warning since Stuxnet that everybody can understand the potential for these tools. Uh, there's academic writing about uh, cyber attack and its importance uh, from 1993 out of China. Um, so, and, and we know a lot of the espionage work comes from their universities. So we know China's uh, fairly far advanced. To me, you just have to look at, you know, any organization with a technical military, you know, which includes most countries in Europe um, and possibly countries in South America. And then, you know, China, maybe Japan, uh, Taiwan for sure, um, all must have, uh, um, cyber capabilities. That's interesting. Now, there are many nations who would like to harm United States if they can. You know, billions of dollars are being invested to develop cyber capabilities to attack U.S. And then uh, if any U.S. enemy nation succeeds successfully attacking U.S., it would bring probably a collapse of global economy due to the heavy dependencies on U.S. economy. While success of U.S. is not taken well by many struggling nations or even many successful nations, I would say, it is also well known that without U.S., the global economy will collapse. 
Now, how to prevent the damage to the global economy? How do you think we can contain the cyber warfare ambitions of some nations who want to uh, hurt or you know, damage United States? So, um, one, I, I'm a lot more optimistic about uh, the United States' uh, survivability, and I don't think the impacts will be as great as the worst-case scenarios. So, in the worst-case scenario is a major power outage, communication outage, um, Wall Street having to shut for <clears throat> several days, etc. And I think the global economy is resilient enough to withstand that. Though the expense, you know, will be measured in hundreds of billions of dollars, um, but I think the, you know, it is. You know, I can't say this often enough, right? It's the responsibility of uh, every country to ensure that they're not susceptible to that level of disruptive attacks. And yes, it's going to cost money to do that. But it's money that they should have been spending all along. So they're in debt, right? They've got a cybersecurity debt. Um, so if a power grid uh, hasn't deployed strong security everywhere for 15 years, when they should have uh, easily 15 years ago, they've gotten lucky that they haven't suffered a major attack in that time frame. Uh, they took a gamble, just like if you, you know, fail to pay your life insurance policy for two years and you're still alive, you just saved all that money. <laughs> but all that time, uh, you know, as you would say, you're you're at risk, right? You're exposed yeah. to a risk. So. Yes, you are absolutely right about that. And but you are right that you know, US has more resources, so they are more resilient to that because even if it's attacked, they have enough financial resources, other resources, so that quickly they can get back up. While many small nations, they don't have that luxury so if they are attacked that would be serious for them because they they don't have resources to get back up so that is a cause of concern for those small nations or developing nations i would say yeah. now, luckily luckily they're not as reliant on that technology right so yes. even though you know so certainly in south america and africa the only telecommunication infrastructure is cellular so they're that is very very vulnerable they can lose their cellular access uh, quite quickly, and they have very few connections to the internet, as we saw in Egypt when uh, uh, President Mubarak was able to shut off internet access for an entire country with only a couple of uh, uh, fiber links into the country. So, you know, resiliency is another aspect of this uh, whole debate, and every organ every country should try and encourage more connectivity. Um, so you've got alternatives if a particular attacker wants to, you know, plant a mine in your uh, landing point for your uh, undersea cables. Yes, yes. I mean, you're right that, you know, at this point, some nation, those nations don't have uh, too much connectivity and they can quickly, you know, shut off their uh, internet connection. But at the same time, with the advances in the internet of things, uh, the points of connect uh, connections are going to increase, uh, you know, rapidly. So, and there will be innovations how, you know, people can target or, you know, do cyber attacks. They will figure out a way that without the main internet connection, how they can use other, you know, sources and they can attack that. So there a lot of advances are happening. So we'll have to wait and see how the developments happen. But let me ask you this. This is something just based on your affiliations that you are, you know, under attack that is reported that Qatar state-owned natural gas company Rasgas was also hit by Marvel named Shamoon. While Qatar, home to three U.S. military bases, is among America's old closest allies in Middle East, and therefore they became convenient proxy target. So proxy target approach is very interesting. How would 
a nation like United States, you know, protect all the, you know, affiliates or their supporters or uh, countries that uh, are their allies, how would they protect them? Because if just by their affiliation, if those nations are targeted, then is it moral responsibility of United States to protect them? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, I don't think the United States can even protect its own organizations, right? So 80% of telecommunication and power grid are actually controlled by the government of the United States. Um, so once again, it's you can't do cybersecurity top down. You can't dictate what has to be done. Um, it would be too expensive. It has to be from bottoms up. So every single organization has to protect itself. When there are uh, dependencies such as that, you know, so if there were a critical source of, uh, you know, um, some material that was absolutely needed, uh, be it a rare earth mineral or uh, memory for computers, et cetera, you have to recognize that and do the risk calculations um, and, and have alternatives to it or, you know, help them, uh, you know, be aware of the exposure that they have and that they, they also should should take uh, stronger measures to protect themselves. Yeah. You know, we can't look at this as a top-down, you know, United States being responsible for more than its own security is hard enough to take, but the fact that it can't even defend its, its own government agencies from attacks. So the Pentagon itself has suffered over you know, in five years, it's had to rebuild its email infrastructure twice because of attacks from outside. So, right. yeah, so a lot of work to do. Everyone is on their own, right? I mean, US yeah. would say that uh, US would say that okay, if you are going to get a nuclear attack or something, we will protect you because we have the capabilities, uh, you know, defensive missiles, right. all those things that. Yeah we would be able to protect you. But if you are attacked by cyber warfare, we won't be You're able on your own. <laughs> You're on your own. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, there are reports that many governments buy bugs from black markets. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, black markets and now fairly open markets, right? They offer to purchase and they work with researchers that don't have to remain anonymous and steal the uh, zero-day vulnerability, not steal, acquire them from uh, from those researchers. Mm, that's very interesting. Now, in the this is a, the current, you know, battle going on between uh, U.S. government and uh, Apple, that uh, government is trying to exploit the security vulnerability of its technology companies so as to get an upper hand in cyber intelligence and warfare. The ongoing battle between Apple and FBI for the backdoor is a perfect example of the lack of effective risk management framework, I would say. Each nation has at some point in their journey asked their private entities to divest or invest with other nations based on their policies and goals. In the current times, as banks and financial institutions are compelled to prevent money laundering by organized crime and terrorist and finance network, should not the internet service providers and technology and social businesses be compelled to crack down on the communication of terrorism while the government agencies want to access encrypted data that could help in the investigation? There is a resistance uh, to this demand. And I firmly believe that Apple should not give a backdoor because giving a backdoor would make them everyone vulnerable to their you know, financial uh, bank accounts and everything because then anybody could you know access that but at the same time 
they do have a responsibility if there uh, there is a communication of terrorism or other warfare going on using their tools on their technology then they have a moral responsibility to be able to know that and to report it to the right authorities so that what are your thoughts on that yeah so you know i'm i'm quite the libertarian um so i don't believe that um doing things that in and of themselves are not illegal should be interfered with so for instance you know and i i might go over the top when i say you know look at transferring large amounts of cash between countries um you know isn't immoral for sure right you know i if i personally had ten thousand dollars and wanted to take it to a relative in canada you know why is that illegal um it's not immoral there's nothing inherently wrong with it now mind you that's the way people hide money from taxes and all the rest so i can see how the the, the government and law enforcement tends to take a uh, they overstep their bounds so now they're going to say certain types of communication um we have a you know legal right to get and i don't believe that's the case regardless of whether you're plotting the overthrow of the government or some heinous crime uh that communication isn't illegal and you could argue that the communication of it itself isn't immoral right acts are immoral uh communications aren't immoral it's so, not, it's so anyways not so they should just stay out of that you know that the the uh, unintended consequences of opening up uh, and destroying privacy and communications are far, far greater than the marginal uh, help that they're going to get after the fact. I mean, you know, this is law enforcement. Uh, I wish that they were better at stopping attacks uh, than they are, but uh, that's the way it is. No, I mean, I, I hear your point about that and I would never, you know, uh, support uh, that notion that there should be a backdoor because that that is just uh, making, you know, everyone vulnerable for security. So that should not be there. But at the same time, I firmly believe that, you know, for managing risk, we there is, uh, you know, responsibility that every each one of us has. And if there is a if banks and financial institutions are forced to uh, monitor on the you know money laundering and all that and notify to the authorities then i think there needs to be development of a process by which if there is a communication happening which is uh, going to you know be detrimental to that particular nation or there is going to be a dam uh, you know attack coming to that nation and then there is, there needs to be a way to notify the authorities so there is enough intelligence because otherwise there is not going to be it's not going to be possible to manage many, you know, critical security risks. So uh, we will have to see how, you know, nations, you know, come up with the proper strategy. But this is something that uh, will need to be discussed, you know, uh, more coming, you know, in the coming years and months. So we'll see. Now, cyber weapons are easy to make, you know, Richard, and that potential use is unlimited. One doesn't have to be a nation state to declare a cyber war. They just have to be very, very smart. That's all. So, and there are a lot of people who have a lot of causes. They are trying to, you know, do something noble. I mean, there are a lot of good causes that they're working for. And there are, you know, some bad, uh, you know, intentions that they have. So this is a whole new world of unknowns where anyone around you can be an enemy trying to attack you. It's a whole new world of, you know, warfare. How can anyone protect themselves from these unknowns? 
well, first of all, uh, you know, attempt to not have enemies. Um, that'd be a, a good thing. So be be nice <laughs> when you're online. Um, the uh, you know you you take the basic steps. You do what you can, right? So encrypt your data. Um, use uh, methodologies for authenticating that you know are uh, limit your risks and exposure. Um, and then, you know, larger organizations have to enforce uh, strict policies for internet use and uh, control. Yes, yes. Now, there is a great benefit, I believe, in clear definitions and guidelines of any warfare, irrespective of whether it's a conventional warfare or cyber warfare. The challenges with cyber warfare is not only nation states are involved, but many individuals, like we just talked, are involved that have sufficient intelligence and smartness to get involved in that. So how would we come up with a cyber warfare guidelines or you know some kind of framework or some kind of understanding that would include each and everyone, like you know, individuals, government, industries, organizations, academia? How would we shape that kind of you know guidelines? Well, uh, most nations uh, are creating uh, what they call cybersecurity strategies, and they've attempted that, right? But it's uh, they started five years ago before they realized some of the ramifications. Um, so I think they should all go back and, and look at that, um, start to work with each other on what those norm, norms are, and they might be, you know, we will not engage in cyber attacks against a population or critical infrastructure. Um, I doubt you'll ever get them to agree not to attack uh, military communications or military uh, equipment, right, and the technology in those. Um, so at least they should get that one step ahead. I think it's too early overall. Um, you, know, the, you know, the major changes in the way nation states work with each other have all come about after uh, major conflicts. So it may unfortunately be that uh, it takes another conflict to create that, that conversation. Right, right, right. Now, cyber war is more than technology. Uh, we know that it's a human and non-human intelligence, processes, frameworks, you know, and much more. The battlefield stands to be fundamentally altered by the information and communication technology revolution at both the, both the strategic as well as tactical levels in a digital global age. So our nation's government and defense departments Understanding the full reality of these changes that you know are associated with the cyber war, um, I don't think so, not yet. And certainly, that's evident in their lack of understanding of what's called software assurance, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you're going to have uh, devices with software, uh, you have to design that software in such a way that it doesn't have a lot of you know vulnerabilities, these so-called zero days in them. Uh, those were designed in the past with the idea that, well, the uh, you know hackers aren't going to have access to my fancy new uh, jet plane, so they probably won't be able to find those bugs. But with the advent of cyber espionage, that's no longer the case. The attackers may have access to the source code and be able to develop those attacks. So I think the biggest mind shift and change is one that every organization has to deal with that produces technology, is that they have to actually design that technology to be as impervious as possible from cyber attack. Right, right, right. Now I hear you on that. Now the implications of any revolutionary technology is not understood at first, you know, most of the times. That was true of, you know, when the tanks were, this, you know, created, the machine guns and all, you know, other... Uh, drones. 
yeah, though they were inoculated, it may take time for NGO to realize that inserting the new cyber technology into old ways of doing things may create new efficiencies and new risks, even as some activities like digitalization uh, become more efficient for some components of a nation. Like you will see that, you know, industries are very good at, you know, digitalization efforts and they're rapidly advancing. They're finding new ways of doing things using the new this new technology like Amazon and Uber and all that. But governments are very, very slow in this area. And at times you will see that, you know, they would buy all these technologies. They would be very eager to purchase that and they would implement that. But everything around it, like processes and everything that needs to the, you know, change, they are not good at that. So most of the times, even if they get, you know, new technology, it's ineffective because that has not been properly implemented and there are not proper change management processes that have been, uh, you know, implemented or used to have the full potential of the technology. So the challenge is, uh, how would you, even if uh, these governments implement technology, the ecosystem around that remains the same, creating failures, inefficiencies and complications in an age where everything is connected. So if industries are advancing, you know, at a rapid speed and governments are not advancing and some other industries, I mean, not all industries are advancing, you know, at a proper speed, but how would we, if there are imbalances within a nation, how would we protect them, you know, overall? Because uh, these cyber uh, security is a very different, you know, era where, you know, if one component of a nation is, uh, you know, not uh, secure or not at a maturity level, and they are not, you know, very effective in managing the security. Then everyone gets impacted because of that, because there are so many interdependencies. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, you raise a very, very important point. You know, governments um, were established, uh, you know, post the fourteen fifty, in order to maintain a stable relationship and establish rule of law, property rights, etc. So that lasted for three or four hundred years. Um, and then we had the technological revolutions that uh, seem to be occurring every two or three years now. And governments just were not built in order to be uh, nimble and responsive to major changes in the way people live their lives or in their money, communicate, etc. So I think that, uh, you know, probably the biggest challenge of the century is how governments can become nimble. You know, we know that nimbleness is associated with being smaller, not bigger. Uh, so hopefully there'll be you know changes. It's going to take decades uh, unless there's you know the kind of rapid changes that most of us don't like to see in governments. Um, but for large established uh, uh, democratic nations, um, they're going to have to learn to adapt uh, quickly and change their uh, their overall structures so that they can do that. And it's not going to happen through the regular means. Yes, you are right about that. I mean, see the new way of doing things, that means new way of governing. What are the different processes of government that you can do, you know, more effectively in, by using lost, less resources and that would cost, you know, less? How can we, you know, govern better? How can we develop that kind of government, digital government? Those are the things, you know. Yeah, well, luckily we have technology, right? So now we have communities, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, online communities, and maybe technology itself could help us. Uh, and there are, you know, you've seen rapid development of uh, smaller communities in the open source world yes. uh, that prove that uh, humans can organize without a, uh, 
the rule of law and force that uh, state governments have. So maybe that's the hope. Maybe technology is its only answer. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we have to start thinking strategically that if we don't, you know, define or come up with new ways of doing things, or if our industries don't come up with new way of, you know, developing products or services, or if our governments don't, you know, come up with new way of, you know, governance or new way of management and all that, then somebody else will. And then, you know, they will have the upper hand because, you know, this is a very, very uh, intense competition that is going on. And we have to start thinking strategically, which I don't see unfortunately you know across industries and nations that people and people are so much overwhelmed with you know just complying with the you know compliance risk and legal risk and uh, financial risk you know worrying about that that they are not thinking about strategic risk which is the you know most important which has the biggest impact and same goes for governments also you know across nations i mean you go to countries and you will hear them talking about their age-old problems not thinking about what is going to hit, what is hitting them now or what will hit them in the coming years so it's very unfortunate and it's very you know uh, worrisome in fact so uh, let's wait and see how this shapes up but what is your opinion about where would cyber warfare fit in the history of warfare well it certainly has a place i believe already we've uh, entered that era where every single battle between uh, technologically advanced uh, countries will incorporate cyber warfare. Um, you know, so and we probably already saw that in uh, multiple incursions in the Gulf, and certainly the uh, occupation of Iraq uh, by the United States was, um, you know, at least by several authors, called cyber warfare because of their use of intelligence and cell phone data. Um, so we've already passed that demarcation. All future wars will be cyber wars in part. Right, right. Now, this is the last question, uh, Richard. We, you have given so much of your valuable time, and I really appreciate that. I'm sure our you know, viewers and listeners all across you know, nations, they're going to benefit from uh, what you shared and you know, your input and uh, your suggestions. Uh, now, this is the last point that you have written so many books on cyber warfare and all. So for the benefit of our viewers and listeners, would you mind sharing details about your books, where they can go to buy that and where, what do you think, which books they would, you know, they must read so that they can understand this cyber warfare better? Sure, sure. So um, the, uh, the first book I wrote on cyber warfare was this one. It's, it's called Surviving Cyber War, and it's a uh, really a history of nation-state attacks. So and it's used mostly as a textbook. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. I apologize for the ridiculous price that the academic publisher charges for it. Um, and, uh, you know, really, since it only goes up to the uh, Google Aurora attacks of uh, 2010, um, it could be out of date, but it's still a good um, uh, foundational cyber warfare history book. Uh, there Will Be Cyber War is my book, uh, also available on Amazon. I have uh, published this myself, so it's very affordable. Uh, I think the price just dropped to $13 on Amazon. Um, and this is a result of my going back to school, studying warfare at the uh, War Studies Department at King's College London. Uh, and it's uh, also a history of uh, revolution military affairs and how we got to today's state. Um, and then, you know, follow me on Twitter and you'll see uh, all my future publications as well. My Twitter handle is CyberWar, one word. Uh, so it's, I'm easy to find. 
Great, cyber war. That's your Twitter handle. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Richard. You know, I really appreciate you joining me on Risk Roundup and uh, discussing this very critical risk facing each one, each and every one of us. So thank you so much for that. And I hope that, you know, as you write more books or as we come up with more research about cyber warfare and other areas that you will be willing to come on Risk Roundup again and have a dialogue so that uh, it will benefit uh, everyone across nations. Of course. Happy to, Jayshree. Thank you. Well, thank you. Wonderful. So uh, the challenges and complexities of evolving threats and security has crossed the barriers of space ideology and politics, demanding a constructive collaborative effort of all stakeholders across nations, uh, its government industries, organizations and academia. When the changing nature of threats are bringing new sets of challenges and complexities, Collective brainstorming is a necessity and not an option like what we are doing right now, that we have to have a dialogue so that we can have an objective evaluation of what is a threat and how can that be secured. It needs to be understood that cybersecurity vulnerabilities do not arise only from technology, but also from inadequacies in governance, processes, management, culture, interdependencies, and integration. When each nation its government industries, organizations, academia, and individuals are now vulnerable to cyber attacks. It is important to understand that short-term fixes that are preferred over identifying and fixing root causes of the problems generally do not work. The approach to security is currently reactive. Not only governments, but most of the industries and organizations do not give importance to securing their information data and are Reacting the response and uh, this reactive response approach limits entire nation's ability to have a proactive cybersecurity risk management capability. While the debate on the structure and role of government, industries, organizations, and academia will continue in the coming years, any attempt to define cyber warfare needs to begin with identifying, understanding, incorporating, and broadening the definition and nature of threat in cyberspace, geospace, and space. Cybersecurity requires an integrated approach with a common language, while appropriate hardware and software is a fundamental necessity. Establishing effective cybersecurity framework, integrated NGIOA approach, structured processes is even more important. And that is the reason Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA in CGS. We at Risk Group, firmly believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we built for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or to hear the risk roundup podcast, go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, your host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.